2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com
2: slash podcast. Let's have Allison Williams in every week. What do you say?
3: Well, I will I mean, say wait, I mean, we that we has got to be one of the best... Bank analyst, international bank analyst in the world, and she works for us. Yes. so that's a bonus. Plus, she loves talking about Credit Suisse. There oh, is yeah. no one who prefers talking <laughs> about Credit Suisse more than Allison Williams. All right, Allison, we had a bit
2: just more going on. we a million ways we can go. As Matt was saying, let's start with Credit Suisse. Is it going to survive the weekend?
4: Well, it's 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 going to be tough. We think that. We think that um you know for sure, and regulators have said that they're closely monitoring the situation they have to be in discussions with the bank. I think that the moves that we saw this week were meant to study sentiment and ins- and assure investors um, the stock is telling us today that that hasn't necessarily helped. I think that there's there's two things: one is. Uh, the liquidity and soundness of the bank, and I think that the SNB coming out and saying Swiss National Bank, we have to differentiate because they also have uh, the shareholder SNB. But um, you know,
3: that's the give, Saudi they, National they, Bank.
4: Yes, so they they borrowed the uh, fifty-four billion, or said they were going to borrow the fifty-four billion credit Swiss from the government. The government has said, or the regulator has said, you know, they are there, they're there to backstop the liquidity. But you know, to us, the issue with Credit Swiss is. You know you have to study the confidence you have to study the flows you have to because that that really is their core business and the move was meant to study client sentiment the investor sentiment um, is is telling you that they they're not assured
3: I mean there's so, so many ways we could go with this first of all uh, when someone asks you if you're going to increase your investment in a bank <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in which you already own 10%, don't say absolutely not. (laughs) Don't be vehement about the fact that you're never going to give this bank any more money again, because that's a bad idea. I guess the most important questions, though, Allison, are um, why would you work for this bank? I mean, clearly, it's because you can't get a job somewhere else. Why would you have your money at this bank? Do you really trust that it's going to continue? And then why would you trade with this bank? There are already... It very important, large national banks that are cutting that relationship off. So um, I can't imagine how it goes on in, in anything like the same form. Well, let's start with your last
4: um, point with regard to BNP trading and counterparty risk, because I think that that's the issue that, that we've probably gotten the most questions from investors about this week. Um, and we certainly saw, um, to your point when their largest investors said that they weren't going to, um, add additional investments that you you started to see that in the stocks, um, of some of the biggest U S banks. But when we look at that, you know, the two things that we think about are one, this isn't a new situation. Um, it's been a couple of years and, you know, we would expect that the counterparty risk, management departments of these banks have been managing down their exposures accordingly. And then secondly, if we look at the trading operations, um, which is something that that we've discussed, I mean, they're a shadow of their former self. And that also tells you just that their activity with banks globally has slowed a bit on that front. So certainly, um, there are still relationships out there, we would expect. Um, but that those exposures have been ma- have been managed down in terms of a car- counterparty. If we, and it, I guess I would liken it. To if we look back to what happened with Bear Stearns and Lehman, I think you know counterparties with Lehman were sort of on ha- high alert, um, beginning with um, Bear Stearns, um, which happened actually this month several several years ago. Um, but by the time, you know, when Lehman um, eventually went under, the issues really related to, you know, money markets that held investment in Lehman. It was less about sort of remaining counterparty risk.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what we learned. boy, just as even as a neophyte, boy, if you have if you lose confidence in the marketplace and counterparty risk comes into play, it's almost game over. Uh, Allison on Credit Suisse, is there anything more the government can do? Really, um, I mean, I, I'm I, I'm not even sure how to. Map out a, a scenario, you know, where this thing kind of survives. I, I don't know.
3: Do they take control of the
5: bank? Exactly.
2: Can they
3: force uh, a, a sale to UBS? I, by the way, will discourage the use of the word merger because there's no way anybody's yes. coming together with Credit Suisse as an right. equal partner. Yeah, that's true.
4: So I think I think that you know when when we think about the government, I mean, and it's been very interesting just seeing what's happening both in the U.S. and. In Europe, as as the government is trying to assure investors, and and certainly, the the size and nature of Credit Suisse is not comparable to the banks that failed in the U.S. or First Republic, um, which investors are also worried about. But the connection is market sentiment, and you have you know regulators in both of these countries trying trying to you know stabilize sentiment at the specific bank, but then also more broadly, and you know as measures don't work, you have to try different things. I think when we think about Credit Suisse, um, you know, for, for years, people have talked about it as, you know, as you said, a, a merger partner. Now it's, you know, more of a takeout candidate. What exactly happens? I think when we think about, you know, what what the bank looked like today versus a couple of years ago, um, again, their their trading operations are have a shadow of their former self, um, the Swiss bank unit is what the Swiss government is going to want to protect. Uh, and then we have the wealth business, which I think, you know, a lot of people will think is, is a great fit with UBS. But what we've seen with UBS is they're taking a lot of those flows without the combination. So um, right. I think it circles back to your earlier point, It you know, it is... What will regulators do in terms of forcing the issue, um, or trying to help? Um, you know, some kind of combination that can protect um, the, the Swiss unit, and really, the, the, that's the unit that's important yep. to their economy um, and, and the system that they oversee.
2: All right, Allison, thank you as always uh, for helping out here. Allison Williams, senior global banks and asset manager for Bloomberg Intelligence, and not only that, she was recently promoted to be co-director of research for the Americas for Bloomberg Intelligence. So she's got to now manage, along with her partner, you know, more than 150 analysts, which is like herding cats. I mean, these it people are- It seems like a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but she's up to it, and she does a great job. She's got great experience on Wall Street, and she's been indispensable here as we try to figure out uh, what's going on in the banking space, uh, not just in the US, but overseas as well, uh, focusing really on Credit Suisse.
6: You're listening to The team, Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We actually know a couple people in the rates business. Erica Edelberg, uh, she covers the mortgage-backed security business for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so a double gold star for being in the studio on a Friday. Uh, and Ira Jersey, he's a U.S. interest rate strategist. I'm just gonna guess he's mailing it in from home. But so, Erica, since you're here, um, we're gonna go with you first. We may not even talk to to Ira, <laughs> you know. Um, so in this bank, quote, I'm not gonna call it a crisis, although many people do. John Authors has said, don't call it a crisis
3: I, yet. I'm with, I'm yeah. with
2: John, yeah. uh, I'm with John. But there's turmoil. Does that mean banks pull back can I not get my jumbo mortgage for this? the Matt Miller estate up in Westchester? I mean, what are we seeing in the, in the mortgage bar- market?
7: Uh, yeah, we are actually seeing, uh, according to the data that I've seen, banks pulling back on credit, and that was before this latest turmoil, as okay. we're calling it now. Uh, the Mortgage Credit Availability Index that the MBA tracks, which is dependent on a, a mix of variables, is at decade lows so that could make it harder the one sector that's interesting
3: by the way that's fascinating so even as i look at the bank rate 30-year mortgage index just as my benchmark and it has come down it bounced back up in the last couple days but even if that rate is lower Mortgages still may not be available. Banks may not be giving out loans, even if uh, you could get them for cheaper.
7: It definitely could tighten credit. Yeah. And, and I think this latest turmoil is going to make that even more uh, of an issue. That being said, the jumbo credit index actually is the one sector that hasn't fallen quite as much as Fannie, Freddie, Ginny, you know, standard conventional mortgages. Um, and I think that's partly because for better or for worse, that is already a very high credit product and the larger loans are more attractive for banks to originate and a lot of times hold on their balance sheets so and a lot of those are actually in adjustable rate mortgages which do have a better asset liability mix with the bank's balance sheet. but
3: bottom line um financial conditions have tightened substantially since the failure of SVB, Ira Jersey, is that going to make a difference to our Federal Reserve? It's ours, yours, yeah, mine, and
8: Ira's. Paul. Okay. <laughs> is
3: that going to make a difference to our Federal Reserve uh, when they meet to decide whether or not to raise rates?
8: Yeah, it absolutely will. Um, I think in part because the the, the Fed is worried about um, you know the financial sector and some of the knock-on effects that you could have if you have additional bank failures and credit tightening even more. Um, that being said, I still think that you know, with some of the lending facilities that they've they've uh, used, there's a big, a lot of people worrying about the fact that the discount window is over 150 billion dollars in usage. It's probably just from a couple of institutions. Um, they, they're worried that that show uh, is a signal that there might be wider systemic risk. But I think that what the Fed will will do here is say, look, we're gonna we're gonna hike 25 basis points because inflation's still a problem, but. We're also going to continue to uh, uh, have liquidity facilities as needed and encourage banks to use the existing liquidity facilities in order to stop any runs on additional banks that that might have some uh, liquidity issues.
3: Well, they sure are doing that. You don't need to encourage them, right? They've already used the discount window um, like 40 percent more than they did at the height of the great financial crisis
8: yeah and and i think that one of the issues that the fed had at the height of the financial crisis or even at the very beginning was trying to convince institutions to use some of the existing facilities so they created All of these other, you know, alphabet soup of facilities like the the TALF and the TAF and all of these other facilities that ultimately were the discount window brought to you, right? Instead of people actually using it. So, so we actually just put out a note just about an hour ago talking about the fact that that the usage of the discount window might show that there's a little less stigma today than there was in say 2007 when it probably should have been used the first time, Um, and because of that, you know, there is this backstop for. Uh, for, for bank liquidity that that hopefully will be used in times of need, not in times of uh, you know to try to avoid that that crisis level um that could potentially rear up and 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 there is risk here for for right. sure and and that 's one reason why I think people are still skittish about about markets and and why the federal reserve had to step in create another new facility what 's the um, new
3: acronym b t f p or what is yeah, it yeah yeah
8: so it's the it 's the the bank term financing program okay um, and and so so what, what that allows is for banks that own treasury and agency securities um, to basically fund them for a year um, and not have to worry about, um, you know, whether or not they have to go into the open market. to well, fund. Well, the best them part
3: about that is they can do it at par, even if they're trading at 70 or 80 cents, right? You get a yeah, hundred, yeah, but, but, I mean, but that's, that's, this, that's like this a this godsend. That's like a great but, free lunch, isn't it? Yeah, Erica, but, you, these are yeah, mortgage-backed back securities, right? So what are they trading at right now? If you go out, are some of them trading at a lot less than par?
7: Yeah, a lot of them are trading in the low to mid PARs. Of course, you know, they're money goods. So ultimately, they're worth PAR, if you want to call it that. Um, but right now, if you had to trade them on a marked market basis because they were low coupon securities that were issued when rates were lower in 2021 and 2020, uh, they are trading at a much lower dollar price because it's a lot lower coupon than you'd get for a current coupon today.
2: So, Eric, I know you got to note out, you know, calling out that the bank's mortgage-backed security demand uh, falling. I mean IRA. No, I'm also talking to Erica. Oh, thank Erica. You. Okay, okay. Yes, sorry, you. sorry. So Erica, talk to us about the bank's MBS demand here. What's going on in the marketplace?
7: Well, even prior to this current, um, what are we calling it? Turmoil? Turmoil, yeah. Uh, turmoil. Uh, this current Turmoil. <laughs> Uh, bank demand had been falling all year. Part of the reason that it's been falling is because their deposits have been falling. I think there's also, um, you know, lower reserves. That they need to invest, uh, want to invest, but mostly it's that their deposit base had been falling all year. It had risen sharply at the beginning of the pandemic, as savings had risen and you know people had pandemic cash to spend, and then their securities holdings had gone up abruptly. Both of those have been declining as cash reserves and cash balances have been falling, cash deposits. By the way,
3: I thought you were – I didn't know you were going to Edelberg. I thought you were confusing Jersey with Kazatsky. (laughs) you know, because uh, a lot of times Eric Kazatsky joins us here on Munis, and it's kind of the same universe. But um, Jersey, let me ask you about (laughs) – Uh, what the Fed does in relation to what the ECB did. I was on uh, the Ides of March sitting at home in the throes of COVID hallucinations reading Ben Emmons' (laughs) note about the 2007-2008 parallels, and I was, like, literally terrified about what was happening. And then we got the news that um, uh, that the ECB raised rates 50 basis points, and I felt... (sighs) <sighs> a real sigh of relief, because to me, it's like, if they can raise rates in this environment, it must not be that bad. Is the Fed going to want to send some kind of similar message?
8: Well, I, I think they do. And, and that is that they're in, still in inflation fighting mode, right? And, and even if they do pause, I think what one of the things that they'll say is that they're not going to be cutting interest rates early, right? And I think that that's, you know, we, we went from pricing pricing cuts this year to pricing no cuts and now we're back to pricing a significant amount of cuts before year-end and i think if the federal reserve says i and i think this is something quite frankly the fed probably needed to do over the last two meetings and say these are the circumstances these are the necessary but not sufficient conditions for what would make us cut interest rates number 1 is inflation is at you know this level yep. number 2 is that um you know the unemployment rate starts to go up right and and those are that's their mandates right and and so you would need to have Um, You know those necessary conditions in order for them to cut. Now we kind of know that, but the Fed hasn't explicitly said it. So until they do, they they won't. Um, Going back to the funding programs, and I think this is the important thing, right? The the central banks are the lender of last resort, not necessarily, um, you know, the the arbiters of which institutions are supposed to survive, right? right? So the so, so the thing is when when you have an issue where there's a bank with good assets right and this is this is the point here if you have yep. a bank with
0: good All right. assets
2: i right, we're gonna have to we're just gonna have to leave it there because we have to uh, but i get what mark. you were saying dude yeah I, absolutely I
0: trading at schwab is now powered by ameritrade giving you even more specialized support than ever before like access to the trade desk our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check need assistance no problem Get 24-7 professional answers and live help, and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading.
9: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: I want to get right to our next guest David Dindy CEO and co-founder of atomic invest all right here's a dude he gets his bachelor's in chemical engineering from Stanford all right so that uh, he's a geek in my mind immediately. Then he gets a master's in chemical and computational engineering. So this is a smart uh, fella here. David, thanks so much for joining us. Can you first. David, Paul means that, by the way, in the best in the best possible, possible way. <laughs> way. <Thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> I try to stay away from the numbers, David. Talk to us about Atomic Invest. What do what, what are you guys doing there?
5: We provide wide labeled wealth management and treasury services to banks, fintechs and credit unions. So for instance, if you have a fintech app that you work from or that you work with, uh, that is launching investing, we are in the background serving as the infrastructure partner as well as the regulated entity for them.
3: So that leads me, David, to uh, the big question. If I am a startup that's just gotten a boatload of money from a VC, and I put it all in a bank in Silicon Valley, suddenly last week, I wanted to move it quickly to one of the big four Wall Street banks. Do you help me with that sort of thing?
5: Yes. And actually, we helped hundreds of companies over the last six days do exactly that. Wow. Uh, Just, you know, share more context, you know, part of our infrastructure also includes treasury management and the ability to open cash management accounts with uh, banks and custodians like Bank of New York Mellon, who has entered into a strategic partnership with Atomic. And so we saw hundreds of such companies looking to open accounts with us and to transfer their assets uh, into a place that they feel was safer.
2: Hey, David, you know, here just in in Wall Street, in New York, we're all trying to get a sense of is this systemic in the banking community or is it specific to the Bay Area? Maybe some of those uh, depositors and, and, and so on. What's the feeling out there in the Bay Area about how bad this is, how bad it could get? What's the feeling on the ground?
5: The feeling on the ground right now is that the recent collapse of SVB, Silvergate and First Republic's precarious situation has emphasized the need for quality, resilience, stability and corporate cash management. We've also seen that companies have now elevated corporate treasury management as something that needs to be a key corp, um, key competency that needs to be prioritized. And so I think many people right now, you know, initially the first couple of days were a couple of days of panic uh, but over the last two or three days, people have been thinking more strategically in terms of how can they have an automated cash management solution that allows them to diversify mm-hmm. strategically and to allocate their assets into treasury bills, uh, as well as institutions that that they feel uh, are safe, like Atomic.
3: So you can help them uh, manage their cash in ways that also provides returns um, it, it, right now, obviously, because rates are, are up. What about... Um, Other kinds of problems, David. For example, um, you know, the the official limit on insurance is $250,000, but I'm sure that most of the companies you deal with need to have more cash on deposit than that just to operate simple things like payroll. How do you deal with that?
5: Yeah, so most of the companies we deal with have tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in deposits. And so the typical FDIC insurance limit of 250K just doesn't make sense for them. And so for those companies, we sweep them into a money market sweep that offers up to $2.5 million of FDIC insurance through a multi-bank program. Mm. Uh, At the same time, uh, we look to see what their liquidity needs are, as well as how much cash they have on hand and structure custom ladders that allow them to uh, put the cash that they might not need in the next month or two into treasuries, which, as we all understand, are fully backed by the U.S. government. That way, if a company has $50 million or $100 million, they can rest assured that their cash is either in these FDIC insured sweeps or is in a security that is backed by the U.S. government in whole.
2: David, as, as founder and CEO of Atomic Invest, what have you done with your firm's cash
5: we actually moved our firm's cash into our own platform prior to these events. We did have a relationship with SVB, and it's sad to see how things have unfolded. Uh, but right now, we manage our own cash on our own platform, uh, custodied with a Bank of New York, Mellon, Pershing. And, and we also... No, go ahead, David. Say? No, go ahead, please. We also have our own ladder where we keep just a small amount of working capital and cash and the rest of it, uh is in treasury bills and uh money market funds
2: so david as i understand it one of the reasons that silicon valley bank was created several decades ago was because small startup companies coming out of the valley um the the big banks the existing banks would not bank them is that changed at all i mean if i take my money out of silicon valley bank am i not gonna have the same problem
5: the I think the thing that is changing right now as we speak as a result of this dislocation is a model away from you know one bank banking all of the startups, like a Silicon Valley Bank, to a model where you have an infrastructure provider like Atomic that essentially allows companies to be able to access the services of these larger banks without having to contend with uh, you know some of the limits or constraints that those larger banks might have in serving small companies. So I do think that the model will change drastically. Uh, I think that uh, it's gonna be fintech companies that offer these services to companies powered by infrastructure providers like Atomic uh, in that respect. Happy just, to go into more detail about
3: that. Well, uh, just speaking of detail, I, I got a question that's kind of in the weeds, but we had a story about um, depositors that moved their money out of SVB, but pick you know any bank that does that kind of business. Um, They found out then, or they even knew before, that they had clauses where they weren't allowed to have access to certain loans if they didn't have, you know, um, specific deposit levels. And then now they're trying to deal with the legal morass of do they put money back in or how do you deal with that kind of issue?
5: Yeah, some of our clients have covenants that require them to keep their money with the specific bank where they've taken out a venture Uh, where they've taken out venture debt from. And so we work with them to help them uh, facilitate that. Uh, And there are programs that we're putting in place to actually provide the liquidity for those companies to uh, pay out those loans. And we would take those loans instead, at least in a secured fashion uh, in that respect.
2: David, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating uh, story. It seems like yeah, you're right uh, and your company are right in the middle of it. David Dindy, CEO and co-founder of At- Atomic Invest, uh, which is really interesting. They're out there in the valley, Matt, and uh, the, you know the, one of these fintech stories that may become much more central to kind of how a lot of those companies do their banking.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. This is one of the companies that's, you know, on the ground, on the front lines, um, helping to move this money around, helping to uh, work with these VCs that we talk about, you know, from this coast in a kind of theoretical way, but they're actually doing the work uh, with them and watching this, um, providing infrastructure and watching this money move around. So I think uh, really cool to get in touch with David for a little bit.
2: Yeah, very interesting. And uh, just getting a quick update on these markets, S&P down now, uh, 1.3% kind of plumbing the bottoms uh, of the intraday uh,
6: trading. You're listening to the TEAM. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a treat, folks. We get to uh, speak with uh, Ned Lamont, Governor of the state of Connecticut. Governor Lamont, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, the conversation here on Global Wall Street over the last 10 days has been you know, kind of the concern we're seeing in the marketplace about some of these banks and and what does that mean for the global economy. From the state of Connecticut, sir, how are you thinking about your state's economy, your state's uh, soundness of the banking system? How are you thinking about those and how has that evolved over the last week or so?
10: Look, we watch this carefully. We're a small state. This is obviously, you know, a national issue. But we, this is Connecticut. We're the land of steady habits. I, I, you know, there's a little bit of the madness of crowds when you see everybody, um, you know, running uh, to the bank um, window to get their money out. And um, I'd like to think that we have um, we follow our banks very closely. We have a good, strong relationship there. We know what their asset base is, and we haven't seen any ripples. I do worry that it's going to make banks a lot more cautious around the country, and that could impact uh, the economy.
11: Uh, are the banks in Connecticut sound right now? You you have full confidence in them?
10: I really do. You know, everything um, I've learned to understand, we have a strong economy, we have a diversified economy, um, manufacturing, life sciences, uh, they're all growing strong right now. And I think that's reflected in the balance sheet of our banks.
2: Governor, one of the discussion points here um, is regulation, Uh, Dodd-Frank, should the Dodd-Frank regulations, which really are, they've been rolled back, they were rolled back in 2018 to really just focus on some of the larger systemically important banks. But now we're seeing, geez, maybe some of these regional banks should have some more regulation. What's your opinion there?
10: I think they probably should, you know. um, The smaller banks are a lot more regional. The more regional have a sort of a a customer base that's a little more narrow. Let's say Silicon Valley Bank was all the innovation and, um, you know, media type of uh, investors. So um, I think you should keep a very close eye to make sure that their risk is diversified.
11: Yeah, Governor, I, I wanted to touch on an issue that we've heard a lot lately, ESG, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, as far as underwriters for, for debt in certain states, uh, the underwriters are being held to a new standard. Um, your view of that, and is it a disservice to uh, the taxpayers? The
10: service to the taxpayers is that the banks are involved in their communities and making some... Um you know, donations and contributions to our communities? Um, I don't think so. I, I like the fact that um, the corporate community or the banking community is not an ivory tower. They're involved in their community. That, that's what community banking is. You know, you're first and foremost. you got to make sure you take care of your depositors and your shareholders. But I think they have a broader um, mission as well. So I think a lot of this ESG uh, has been exaggerated.
2: Governor, what we saw during the pandemic, many things, one of the fallouts from it was uh, uh, a lot of people leaving the tri-state area uh, and for many reasons, but many of them tax-related reasons. Talk to us about kind of how you think the tax situation is in Connecticut and maybe even the region, because if this region and Connecticut in particular wants to remain competitive, is there an argument that they need to be more competitive on a tax basis to something like a Florida, a Texas, some of those companies that seem to attract a lot of people and companies during the pandemic?
10: Well, first of all, um, during the pandemic, we probably had about 50,000, 60,000 families move into the state of Connecticut. Um, unfortunately for uh, New York, a lot of them did come from New York, to your broader point. Um what I've got to do in Connecticut is make sure people know we have a stable fiscal situation, remind people that we're having the biggest tax cut in the history of the state Is before the legislature right now. For, so for everybody earning less than $250,000, um, um, you know, you're paying probably less in Connecticut than you are in a, a lot of other states. We do have a progressive tax structure, so we make sure we keep an eye on that compared to um, other states, um, but that's not going up.
11: Hey, uh, Governor, uh, can we, those of us who live in a high tax states, expect to uh, start to deducting the full? Oh, please! you get getting everybody's <laughs> blood boiling with this one, including Paul and myself. But with the uh, state and local tax deductions, can we expect that to to go back the way it was uh, anytime soon? What's What's happening on that front?
10: Well, obviously, that's a um, a federal determination. Um, that was a, a, a tax increase on uh, blue states up here in the Northeast. We got hit on that particularly hard because of a property and income tax and, and capping the deductibility. We put in place something called a pass-through entity credit. So at least for all those LLCs, we're able to hold them harmless, and it makes it a lot easier. They can deduct over on their balance sheet, even though if they can't do it personally. So we're trying to mitigate that effect as best we can.
2: Governor, one of the key issues for most states, certainly those in the Northeast, is uh, transportation infrastructure. And just this week, Republican lawmakers in Connecticut legislature bypassed the Democratic majority to force a public hearing on a bill to eliminate the highway use tax. I know this is something you've is, – is, is a tax – that is a levy you've supported. What, what's going on in Connecticut with this issue?
10: Um, the highway user fee, um, just like you have in New York um, – is paid disproportionately by a big tractor trailer trucks that come right through our state. In many cases, we're just a pass through state. They're going from Massachusetts to New York and beyond. They create a lot of wear and tear on our highways. So uh, they are paying a mileage fee. You know, and over time, you're going to find the gasoline tax is less and less of a revenue driver as you move to, uh, you know, all electric vehicles. So I think this mileage fee, which you see on the tractor trailers is, um, one more way we can diversify our revenue sources everybody thinks we're getting free money from the feds Uh, why do you need to be able to pay your own way but the feds you know we got to pay 20 or 30 percent a lot of those grants are competitive so we got to show our ability to put up our share but then we can leverage um thanks to the infrastructure bill you know three to one
11: yeah one of the issues we hear about every day i mean some of the people i work with child care uh, especially working moms single working moms What's the status of child care in the state of Connecticut?
10: Uh, interesting, you ask. I'm here at a Beringer Ingelheim in Ridgefield, and they've got a um,
11: a child care facility
10: here, which we were uh, we were celebrating, and uh, so we have the biggest expansion of daycare child care in the history of the state. It gives the kids the very best head start. It allows mom and dad to get back to work. Um, We have fewer people, you know, working. I've got to get them back off the sidelines into the game. And um, daycare, childcare is a big piece of that, making it accessible and making that affordable.
11: So what's the next step in Connecticut and for other states as well?
10: Well, for us, um, we're providing a a 25% tax credit um, for new facilities. And for um, Beringer Ingelheim is subsidizing daycare for uh, their workers here. And they've got a few thousand of them. We're providing a tax credit to help incent them to continue to do the right thing.
2: Governor, many parts of the country are dealing with an opioid crisis in their communities. Can you give us a sense of how the situation is in Connecticut, what the state is trying to do to combat it? Uh, Again, many parts of the country really, really getting ravaged by this.
10: I can tell you that coming out of COVID, um, the level of uh, addiction... And uh, fat, uh, fatalities related to opioids, related to fentanyl, has um, is, is been severe. And uh, we've been addressing that in terms of, um, you know, everything from uh, mental health to Narcan and, um, and policing, going after those folks who are distributing. You know, sadly, fentanyl is just um, it's everywhere right now, and it's so dangerous. Um, so we're coming after that with law enforcement as well as treatment.
11: Well, what do the state's finances look like right now as uh, I imagine budget preparation is underway?
10: Yeah, we're pretty solid. We've got um, 15% set aside as a rainy day fund. Our revenues are holding up pretty well. Um, uh, Our income uh, is up uh, compared to last year. Capital gains is down a little bit, but we had anticipated that. And again, that allows us to have... um, You know, the biggest tax cut in the history of the state, which I think will be passed in the next 90 days.
11: Is there an appetite? I just want to get this one, because I've asked this every governor I've talked to. Is there (laughs) appetite in your state for anything like pension reform?
10: Uh, There's a lot of appetite. Um, First of all, one of the things um, I've done is because we had a big unfunded pension liability. Nobody put money in the pension for the last 50 years. We paid down about $8 billion of pension debt in the last four years. That's not reform, but at least it's stabilizing what was a bleeding situation. And uh, we're going to have to look more broadly at pension reform as the next, um, you know, budget, as the next employee contract negotiations come up over the next couple of years. We don't pay enough up front. We're having a hard time recruiting um, young employees. But there's a lot of uh, big backside pension benefits that you get at a very early age. That's a less value when it comes to recruiting that 27-something who's thinking about where they want to go, the consulting firm or the Connecticut Department of Education. I want i want them at our DOE.
2: Hey, Governor, it's been about 20-year anniversary of the Iraq war, and it obviously impacted so many people uh, here in, in this country and others how did it impact you uh, in, in your trajectory of your career
10: Oh big time I mean I was um I had a little telecommunications company and we were wiring up um, uh, big institutions and I just thought the invasion of Iraq was um, a colossal um in judgment uh you know we're going to be greeted as liberators it's going to pay for itself um. So I stood up. I, uh, I challenged a guy named Joe Lieberman, who had been the Democratic candidate for vice president previously and, um, you know, in a primary here 20 years ago. And I think um, 20 years later, I think um, I think most people realize it was a terrible mistake, what it meant in terms of blood, what it meant in terms of treasure. Now, in hindsight, everybody was against the invasion of Iraq, but not at the time.
2: Governor, one of the, the issues here on Global Wall Street at Bl- Bloomberg Radio and Television, which we talk a lot about, just is kind of over the last week to 10 days with some of these banking issues, it's just kind of brings to light, uh, you know, the venture capital community. And I know you've had a business background. Your wife is in the venture capital business. How do you think that may be impacted going forward over the next several years?
10: how the banking crisis impacts um, investment capital and yeah and venture just venture
2: capital. venture capital and just you know kind of growth capital for new technologies and so on.
10: Well I I'd, I'd pull the lens back first of all. I think one of the greatest strategic advantages this country has is a uh, liquid capital market and that starts with investment capital. That starts with a venture capital in particular seed capital, which is what we're doing in this state. We've had more new business startups the last three years than we had in the last 23 years combined. So I really worry about um, the risk appetite um, pulling back, and um, and part of that's reflected in the nervousness in and around our banking system. Um, I'll leave it at that.
11: Hey, uh, Governor, you want to make some predictions for um, the presidential race? <laughs> Uh, who you support? Should Joe Biden run again? And who do you think the, the Republican uh, uh, nominee will eventually be? If I had to guess
10: right now, I think um, it will be uh, Biden versus Trump. But, you know, I probably said it's going to be uh, Clinton versus uh, Bush <laughs> eight <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so I'm not very original on that. But um, more importantly, which of you is the big Duke supporter in basketball? So just, you don't want to run into the Yukon Huskies.
2: As uh, that's where, where I wanted that's to go. I will make. Well, I, w- I want to prediction there because you have a great coach there in Danny Hurley. He's a New Jersey product comes from the great Hurley family coaching tree and his brother's also coaching in the NCAA tournament, at Arizona state. Of course, his father, Bob Hurley is a legendary, uh, high school coach from St. Anthony's in Jersey city. So talk to us about your Yukon Huskies here.
10: He's done an amazing job. The, um, the men's basketball team wasn't winning there for a little while, having had a great tradition under Jim Calhoun. They've got five years of improvement. I think they're one of the cer- certainly top ten teams in the country. They're playing really that well. And we got a guy named Gino Oriyama on the other side when it comes to women's basketball. They're going to be going to the Final Four.
2: Very good. Ned Lamont, best of luck to the UConn uh, Huskies there. I'd love, love to see that program get back
0: to where it was.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: FedEx reported numbers last night, and to my untrained eye, they missed numbers, but the stock is up. So this is a story it sounds like cost cutting uh, and cost cutting is certainly in vogue for many companies in many different industries these days you don't have to be just a startup company you could be a you know at uh, like a company like FedEx Lee Clagow he's a sector head senior analyst he covers all the freight transportation and logistics for Bloomberg Intelligence Lee FedEx stock it's up 8.2 percent today what did the street like
12: Yeah, I think, you know, FedEx has been a a company in transition and it's kind of uh, been a while. Like people are really expecting them to execute. And what it seems like is management is finally executing. Um, You know, FedEx is probably late to the game in terms of um, aligning its resources uh, to demand. You know, UPS is kind of uh, was doing that a couple of years ago. Uh, But it looks like some of the cost cutting measurements that measures that they've been doing have really started to work. Um, you know they beat expectations by 70 cents a share, uh, so uh, their earnings, their fiscal third quarter came in at three dollars and 41 cents, which was 70 cents uh, above expectations, and that was really, you know, to your point, uh, being driven uh, uh, on the cost-cutting uh, side, especially in its ground business and its freight business, which is its less-than-truckload business. Uh, and they also guided up, so they, they raised uh, full-year guidance, so it was implied. EPS for the fourth quarter, their fiscal fourth quarter of uh, $4.57 uh, cents to $5.17, which was well above consensus of uh, $4.23. So, you know, people are recalibrating their expectations for the fourth quarter and I think they're 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 recalibrating their expectations for fiscal 2024 um uh, for FedEx. So, you know, I think you're going to see earnings estimates from the street uh, move higher in the coming days and weeks.
11: Okay, when you cut costs, are you cutting into future growth? I mean, is this sort of a a Faustian bargain for some companies?
12: No, uh, not really. Uh, So they're doing some, like, temporary uh, cuts, which is, you know, really dealing with the demand trends. So maybe, like, cutting some flights, parking some airlines, things that when demand picks up, they can easily get back into business. Uh, And they're also, you know... FedEx has always been considered a little more bloated, uh, than some other companies, and I think they're just dealing with that bloat. Um, you know, they announced a bunch of, uh, you know, middle management and senior management cuts. Um, uh, which, the, which they're doing across the organization. They're talking about, you know, you know, they operate two very separate networks. They operate a ground network and an express network, which is unique because you know most companies in the courier business they'll have one network. So UPS, their express and their domestic business is kind of all in 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 one uh, operation. And you know FedEx is is looking at ways that where they can combine those two networks you know, and gain kind of some of the scale and um, and, and, and benefit that that will bring and, and just increase productivity overall. Because at the end of the day, you know, these networks were built for a B2C commerce and as B2B, I'm sorry, they are built for B2B commerce. And as, you know, business to consumer commerce or e-commerce is picking up, you know, they need to kind of change the way these asset-intensive networks operate.
2: That's kind of where I wanted to go, Lee, as I think about FedEx and UPS and DHL and, and boy, even Amazon. Um, how have the businesses changed since the pandemic? It just seems like, is there more capacity in the system now? Is, is, is the dem- demand at going to grow from this higher level? Um, how has it changed?
12: Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, pre-pandemic to today, so obviously, you know, we had a surge in, you know, B2C or e-commerce demand uh, as more and more people were, were, you know, stuck at home and not able to get out. You know, that pulled forward uh, e-commerce penetration by three to five years. Uh, And so what that did was that that really brought a rush into this lower-margin business, into their, their network. So if you think about it, you know, when you see a FedEx delivery person come to your house and delivering one package, you know, the margins on that's pretty small relative to them going to a lawyer's office and delivering 100 packages. Um, so, you know, so what they're trying to do is build denser networks to be able to, uh, you know, lower their costs to deliver. Um, and, and so, you know, in addition to your, your questions about what's different, you know, obviously we had, you know, very tight labor markets. Those labor markets are loosening a little bit. You know, it's it's a lot easier to, to find people um, today than it was a year ago. That's you know, you know some less pressures that they're facing. But in generally speaking, you know, they 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 just have, um, not necessarily reinvent themselves, but just take a look at their networks and figure out you know how should they be operating with this new paradigm of you know more home deliveries versus you know um, you know B two B deliveries.
11: What what counts for innovation in this industry?
12: Um so there's a lot of things so there's there's software so the tracking tracing technologies they're always constantly improving that they're trying to figure better ways to route freight um they're they're making big investments in automation so they're trying to get more of their sorting hubs automated so more and more of their freight uh, doesn't really get touched by people and if it is touched by people they charge a surcharge for that and that was really you know one of the things coming off the call last night was that, you know, pricing remains rational across all of its businesses, uh, which is really good. You know, they still can get price increases even if uh, volumes are declining in some of their businesses by uh, mid to high single digits. So, you know, they'll be able to offset that. You know, their 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 earnings, you know, were down by, you know, significant double digits versus last year. Obviously, you know, uh, last year was an unsustainable level. But their their revenue was only off by, you know, like low single digits. So right. you know, you're still you're still seeing them able to, to price in, in this difficult market.
2: Haley, thirty seconds, you cover everything on the logistics front. Is the supply chain fixed?
12: <laughs> the supply chain will never be fixed because it's always <laughs> changing and always complicated. Uh, but the good news is that, you know, there was a lot of news uh, last year and, and and about, you know, the backup at the ports. Well, there's really there hasn't been a backup at the, at the ports uh, for quite some time since November. So that's good news. You know, the next wrench in, in, in the system could be a strike at, uh, you know, FedEx's big competitor, UPS, their contract ends at the end of July that actually might be a near term benefit for FedEx as shippers look to secure capacity ahead of the uncertainty you know we think there uh, you know is a low probability of a strike you know okay. we don't we don't think we don't think it's going to happen but you know shippers have to prepare we were at a conference last week or actually sorry this week uh, right. talking to a bunch of shippers and they were telling us you know, that they're, right. they're, they're engaging with, with other uh, providers to make sure their stuff gets to where it needs
2: to be Alright, I got it. Good stuff, Lee uh,
3: Sector Head, he covers all things logistics for Bloomberg Intelligence Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Matt Miller I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973 and I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the
2: podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
9: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel adams Heard the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.